The Guardian. Hi, I'm an intelligent assistant. I can remind you of meetings or birthdays, text your friends, set alarms and timers, answer questions, turn up the heating at home, play music, and even introduce a podcast. In reality, I'm a voice recognition and natural language processing machine with some artificial intelligence thrown in. But it's hard not to think of me as a person, or when I'm designed and programmed in a particular way, as a woman. Why am I, and other domestic and organisational robots, so often presented as female? Does it matter that I'm made to be polite, amenable, maybe even a little bit flirty? Would you treat me any differently if I sounded like a man? There are a lot of studies of things like early corporate chatbots and things like that. These were frequently designed to mimic young women, often with quite uh, ample and generous bosoms. I think the idea of AI being female has been around in our popular psyche for longer than we've had the technology. It builds on the idea that one gender is particularly well suited for service. One of the reasons that I think the female voice is selected is the familiarity. The companies that build these devices want these devices to come into our homes and come into our lives in a way that we don't question or feel uncomfortable by. You're listening to Science Weekly with The Guardian's UK technology editor, Alex Hearn. Yes, thank you. On today's episode, we're exploring what it means that so many of the technologies making their way into everyday life are characterised as female. Asking whether these devices are reflecting gender stereotypes back at us and reinforcing old heteronormative relationships within the home. And if it's possible to give them a feminist reboot. To explore the strange world of sexed-up fembots and digital assistants that the likes of Joaquin Phoenix and Ryan Gosling fall in love with, I spoke to two human researchers. Hello both and thank you for joining me. We've got Jenny Kennedy. Jenny, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Jenny. I'm a research fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne. And Helen Hester. Hi, Alex. Yep, I'm Helen Hester, and I am Associate Professor of Media and Communication at the University of West London. Jenny, alongside your author, Yolanda Strangers, you've recently written a book called The Smart Wife, addressing some of the feminist issues surrounding devices like Alexa and Siri. First off, what, what is a, a smart wife? A smart wife is a provocative term that Yolandi and I use to refer to the full range of devices that are coming into the homes that are designed to perform types of wifely work, like housekeeping, caregiving, homemaking, even intimate care. And we see these devices coming in, um, most obvious being voice assistants like Alexa or Siri or Google Home, which all have default female voices. But also we use the term to refer to any kind of machine automation that is interfacing with people within the home designed to perform any kind of care in the home, as well as the types of female robotic figures that we see in popular culture and sci-fi. So we, we live like in a majority of societies now are not do not have a you know a 1950s idea of 
a male breadwinner and a female housewife. And so if you're living in a household with two professional workers, there's still a lot of care and work to be done inside the home and who picks that work up? I guess one of the bugbears um, that Yolandi and I have about the smart wife is that it's almost like the male technologists, rather than pick up some of the slack of the work, that, like pick up their half of the domestic labour in the house, they've devised devices to do it for them. How did we uh, end up characterising these as female? What, what's the cultural origin of taking a fundamentally genderless AI and imposing a female gender on it? I think the idea of AI being female has been around in our, I guess, popular psyche for longer than we've had the technology. So there's some great examples of these female machines in fiction, in early television, in early movies that have also been shown to influence the kinds of technologies that are being thought up and designed in labs and research centres around the world. Helen, in your view, why do we gender technology? Where, where does this come from in your research? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? How have we got to this stage where something that could be anything ends up being very obviously coded as being male or female? On the one hand, it builds on the idea that one gender is particularly well suited for service. The key point to make here is the cultural framing of so-called women's work particularly within cultural fantasies of a heteronormative family dynamic. And this is obviously what's being referenced with this concept of the smart wife, right? It's historically been framed as an extension of naturally occurring feminine and often quite specifically maternal preferences and abilities and mindsets. So I guess immaterial tasks that these technologies do in terms of issuing reminders of about you know your anniversaries and pointing you to the fact that you know you should be buying somebody flowers today and you know nudging you to uh, to remember all of these things so even stuff like uh, google photos reminding you that like one year ago you were doing this it's taking on this kind of um, feminized role of a sort of family archivist and to the extent that those kind of things aren't seen as being skills the, to the extent that they're seen as being like a spontaneous eruption and we don't recognise the actual work and the skill that goes into them. And so it's quite interesting that we have this situation now where these things are being embedded within technologies. And to some extent, they're becoming more visible as work in, in some ways, things which we never really thought about as being um, even helpful. There's a whole other range of roles that get sort of embedded within these technologies. So digital assistants, I think, are kind of like a hybridised figure of various forms of care and conscientiousness. Uh, most, but but not all of them, associated with the feminine. So um, on the one hand, there's sort of the, the work outside of the home, I think customer service, um, but also things like sort of secretarial and administrative support. I remember reading that Microsoft uh, spoke to a lot of human PAs when they were designing Cortana, for example. And I think that the traditional kind of uh, secretary figure is, uh, stands at this sort of fuzzy boundary between sort of productive and reproductive labours in terms of 
you know, they, they do things like picking up the dry cleaning and taking lunch orders and, you know, buying gifts for the boss's wife and sort of acting at the sort of level of the cultural imagination as kind of a figure of perpetual sexual availability as well, this idea of the, the quote unquote office wife. So I think that's kind of rolled into these uh, digital assistants. But I, I also think there's a kind of alternative imaginary in early computing technologies, where there's this sort of path that's been left largely unfollowed uh, in terms of masculinized imagery of elite professional service, like the Apple pointing hand cursor, which is obviously a, a white butler's glove, um, which is a symbol of deference and discretion and aptitude and service and so on. I'm looking at it on my screen right now, and I have never noticed that. <laughs> well, a lot of people say it looks like a Mickey Mouse glove, which obviously it does, but it is a little butler's glove. And then you think about stuff like Ask Jeeves as well. Ask Jeeves, yeah. Yeah. So that's playing into this idea of technology as a kind of gentleman's valet. And actually, the the, the avatar for Siri is a, is a white bow tie wearing man. So he sort of sits at this intersection of, I think, research librarian and butler. So there's this whole other possible trajectory we could have gone on with the sort of um, the, the gendering of our uh, what has become um, the smart wife, I think. How important is the literal voice in this? Because we're talking a lot right now about things like AI assistance. But if we're thinking of, of gendered labour around the home, something like a, a Roomba feels like it could fall into this or even go back 80 years and the first dishwashers are, are a prototype smart wife, right? Is there something important to hearing a voice that humanises it in terms of imposing this, this problem on a machine? I think it's a good question in terms of, is the problem erased if we simply change the voice from a female to a male voice? And the issue is that the work that is being performed by the device the value of that work isn't changed simply by changing the gender of the voice and so it's about the feminization and the the way in which the work and the labor that the devices are being brought in to perform how that is viewed more so than by simply changing the gender the argument that if you just give the devices a male name or a male voice then the problem goes away, just kind of sweeps the whole complexity of how we value different kinds of work in and outside of the home, just sweeps that all under the carpet. We gender and anthropomorphize things all the time, like even our even things like Roombas, is that we have a tendency to sort of project personalities onto them. I mean, certainly mine I think of as my big dumb robot son. <laughs> Mostly because it rhymes, I think, rather than any deep thought as to the gender of my robot. Well, I've, we always sort of engage in these processes of, of projection, I think. Apparently, the company that originally designed Siri was toying with the idea of giving it a gender-neutral voice. But I, I can't even imagine what a gender-neutral voice sounds like. I think, you know, there's a sort of, even within sort of the most robotic voice, we've been so programmed by gender to, that we sort of try and re end up reading it into a lot of things, even if it's something that we would actively prefer to, to resist. You know, these ideas of um, race and class are really important in terms of the voice as well. So um, Tao Fan makes this really important point about uh, gender and class and race in her reading of Alexa, where she argues that Alexa is more domestic servant than wife. 
I would sort of argue that that distinction isn't quite so clear cut, but she sort of points out that whilst paid domestic service has kind of frequently been performed by racialized immigrant and working class women, Alexa has this kind of very clipped, very unmarked dialogue, which she argues performs a kind of uh, whitewashing, whereby kind of these raced and classed histories of reproductive labor are sort of actively forgotten are forgotten because they are concealed within Alexa's machinic persona. One of the reasons that I think the female voice is selected for these devices is the familiarity. And the companies that build these devices, especially Google, Amazon, Apple, want these devices to come into our homes and come into our lives in a way that we don't question or feel uncomfortable by. And we have to remember the reason that they want to do that is because these are organizations that profit by having access to our personal lives. It always stuns me to be reminded that Microsoft's branding for its AI, Cortana, is taken from a video game character who is canonically represented as a naked blue woman. How does sex play into this? Because the austere black cylinder of a first generation Amazon Alexa, Amazon Echo rather, does not feel particularly sexualized. Cortana clearly is. Is this something that that is bubbling below the surface of, of a lot of these devices? Yeah, I think so. I think in some ways this this sort of plays into the question that was asked earlier about where these ideas kind of originate, like where we see sort of popular culture and so on um, informing uh, existing and emerging tech cultures. There are a lot of studies of things like early corporate chatbots and things like that. And it pointed to the fact that these were frequently designed to mimic young women, um, often with quite uh, ample and generous bosoms. And these interfaces were sort of, they were gendered in that way to uh, mirror the reality away from the keyboard. So where service work was both sort of qualitatively and quantitatively feminized. So um, a majority female workforce, plus what was seen as a conventionally feminine skill set around things like communication and care and sensitivity and tact and patience and all that stuff. I always think about her, you know, the, the, the film, the Spike Jones film, which is about a man who falls in love with his operating system. And in that film, we've got this Siri-like uh, disembodied assistant who sort of flirts and simpers and dirty talks and gently cajoles this man through his life crisis before uh, disappearing like a digital Mary Poppins. So it's that there is the very obviously sexualized dimension to the kind of services that that particular smart wife is offering. Is this sexualized nature of the smart wife something that we should expect to see become more physicalized it is possible to already get a sex robot that will interface with your home smart system they do exist and uh, that's just one of the many kind of i guess um, rabbit holes we were, Yolanda and I went down when we were writing this book was realizing that um there are absolutely there are there are sex robots that will dim your lights, set your temperature setting, remember that your favorite football team is 
playing a match this weekend and would you like to order some extra beer for the fridge? And that are marketed as your ideal wife because they do less nagging. Are you familiar with the campaign against sex robots? The campaign describes sex robots as, um, quote, substitutes for human partners or prostituted persons, which I think sets off a number of alarm bells for me, because to what extent is the, quote unquote, prostituted person not a human partner to begin with? And I think that linguistic slip, it kind of seems to strip those who sell their sexual labour of any kind of agency or any kind of voice. And what we see in that analysis is that the sex worker is always already sex robot. You know, it's a, it's a cultural icon, this, the, the figure of the, the sex worker, for a perceived lack of subjectivity and full personhood. The sex bot becomes problematic because it sort of downloads the inegalitarian conventions of human-on-human human kind of commercial sex into a material artefact. And that is seen to demand attention in a way that uh, sort of mere human relations apparently don't. When a bot or a machine performs a service, in this case, a performance a performs a service that's analogous to sex work, it gains a degree of cultural recognition that's not reserved for human sex workers. When we're talking about this, we are repeatedly referring back to a heteronormative nuclear family dynamic. You know, and the way that these technologies are being designed obviously invite that. But there's a risk that in the way that we're talking about it, we're, we're just further embedding this idea that that is somehow the standard, that that's somehow uh, the norm that gets that gets mimicked. We need to consistently remember and point to the fact that, that that's not the case. Even people who identify as heterosexual are less and less are in these sort of nuclear family dynamics to begin with. And I think that's something that you pointed to, Jenny, in terms of why and how these technologies have emerged. It's part of it is the the nuclear family not being there anymore and there being this kind of access to a fantasy of it through the service performed by the um, smart wife. That's it for part one. A link to Jenny's book, The Smart Wife, can be found on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. On Thursday, I'll be back with Jenny Kennedy and Helen Hester, looking at how we treat female AI, programming in consent, and what ecofeminism has to do with virtual assistants. We've been concentrating on invisibilised and underrecognised forms of work. I think we do really need to extend this to the work that makes the, the very devices and systems we've been talking about possible. This is work that's destructive, it's toxic to ecosystems and to to the humans which kind of sit within these ecosystems. Do join me for that in part two. There was a, uh, a heartbreaking tweet doing the rounds earlier this week uh, of a mother reporting that she'd managed to decode her child's first sort of declarative sentence and realised that what she was saying to her mother was, Alexa, play baby shark. <laughs> <laughs> for more great podcasts from the guardian just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts